Good morning. Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you to be here again. I uh, I want to thank my teacher Galen Roshi, Konjin Roshi, Abbot Konjin Galen Roshi, for the invitation, for all her generous support of me and also of Austin Zetzinger. And I do feel uh, like this is a second home. So delighted to be with you. <clears throat> I guess I'm ready for my close-up. So. <laughs> and I'm having a little bit of an out-of-body mind experience because uh, the abbot uh, and our visitor Kristen was were just in Austin yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, I don't know, some kind of boomerang happening. <laughs> now I'm here. Um, anyway, things like this happen sometimes. Uh, so in Austin, right now, there's a very strong interest in uh, studying and discussing the precepts, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And I didn't know when I decided to give this talk which is on the three grave precepts, that you would be doing the full moon ceremony this morning <laughs> for service. So that seems another auspicious, not coincidence somehow. Um, but anyway, uh, and there's a lot of interest in um, sewing a rakasu, as many of you have already, and many of you I'm sure are doing right now, um, and receiving the precepts in the ceremony we call jukai or uh, Zaike Tokudo, staying home and accomplishing the way. <clears throat> and I didn't actually know this until I was really quite far, I thought, into Soto Zen. I think our reputation is that we're the Zazen school, right? We emphasize sitting. Is that your impression? Some nods. And then I found out, partly because of uh, Galen's instruction, that we are the precept school. <laughs> and I thought, how did I not understand this, but I came to understand it more as I uh, <clears throat> proceeded down the path. So we are fundamentally a precept school. Um, and the precepts are especially uh, up for me, since I am a teacher now, um, you know, more than they would be anyway. <clears throat> and I wanted to explore with you uh, a fundamental teaching of the Buddha that is encompassed in our 16 Bodhisattva uh, precepts or vows. And I'm speaking of the three pure precepts. And they're found in the Dhammapada, which is uh, fundamental teachings of the Buddha, which is composed of four line gata or verses, we sometimes call them, that are attributed to Shakyamuni Buddha himself. And uh, in this verse, verse 185, we hear that the Buddha exhorted his followers by saying, and this is one translation which you may have heard before, whether or not you're studying the precepts, uh, renounce all evil, practice all good, keep your mind pure, uh, thus all the Buddhas taught. Is this familiar? Yes, to some of you. So at first glance, I think, or first hearing, um, these instructions uh, seem kind of straightforward or at least the first do, right? Renounce all evil, practice all good. What could be simpler? 
<laughs> the third may give us pause, and it did me, uh, in, especially early on, whenever I heard the word pure, I thought, what is this purity? What is this purity, right? But all three seem rather, at the same time, vast and maybe unattainable. Renounce all evil, practice all good, and keep your mind pure. Um, moreover, this four-line form of the gata ends with this observation that this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So it's not just Shakyamuni, it's all the Buddhas, right? Not only Shakyamuni's individual teaching. And that underlines, I think, how fundamental this teaching is. So when I hear the words, you know, renounce all evil, um, I hear at the same time, do no harm. You know, the Vedic and yogic principle of ahimsa, uh, which is sometimes translated as non-violence or non-injuring, non-harming, right? The, the ah or a of ahimsa is a, neg a negation, right? So no or non or not harming. Um, and when I was preparing this talk, uh, a version of this talk anyway, I read that Mahatma Gandhi, who taught famously taught non-violence, said, ahimsa paramo dharma, nonviolence or non-harming is the highest dharma or law, dharma in the sense of law. And I also think of the Hippocratic Oath, right, uh, that physicians take, which is first do no harm. Right? So that's kind of what it brings up for me when I hear, you know, renounce all evil, do no harm. <clears throat> And both of these instances for us, nonviolence, non-harming, I think kind of uh, bring up or emphasize preserving life, not making things worse, uh, and treating other beings with thorough care. But in studying and engaging with the Bodhisattva precepts, we are taught that there are actually three ways of creating karma, right? Which is the result of intentional act karma, which is intentional action that brings results now or some other time in some other place, right? The results of deliberate action. And this is referred to in our acknowledgement of karma in our repentance ceremony, right? And there are three ways of creating this karma, good or bad. It's produced by body, speech, and mind, right? With the body, so it could, could be including physical violence, uh, if we we're talking about what we usually think of it on the negative side, with expression through words and uh, with the mind, with our thoughts. And there isn't much wiggle room here, really. That's the whole thing, right? It's our it's the whole sphere of our human activity. And so we can't say, well, I refrain from doing that thing or saying that thing. So thinking that thing doesn't count, right? At least I refrain from doing or saying it, but actually the teaching tells us otherwise. Right? According to the teaching, thinking, encompass is also action and feeding thoughts, thoughts that we cultivate uh, also intentionally also bear karma. So there's a famous story, which you may have heard before, that speaks to the foundational quality of these three uh, instructions. Um, so this is from Dogen, our founder in Japan. Um, and he recounts uh, the story um, in his fascicle or chapter called Shawaku Makusa, do no harm. <laughs> that's, a, that's his teaching on this. 
He recounts the story that there was a Chinese Zen master whose name was Bird's Nest, Bird's Nest Roshi, because he lived in a tree. One day a disciple of his, who was also a statesman, that was his occupation, he came to see his teacher in the tree. And he yelled up that it looked pretty precarious up there, a pretty precarious place to practice. And Bird's Nest Roshi called down that uh, to the visitor and said, well, from where I sit, uh, it looks, you know, pretty dangerous down where you are. <laughs> and uh, another time, the same disciple showed up at the tree and he asked a pretty typical Zen question, a kind of challenge question. What's the great matter of Buddhist teaching? He yelled up to the, to the Roshi in the tree. And Bird Ness Roshi referred to the first two of these three pure precepts, right? Refrain from all evil, do all good. And the di disciple said, well, okay, but even a three-year-old, a three-year-old child knows that. And bird nest, bird's nest, or master bird nest, let's call him, replied, a three-year-old knows it, but even an 80-year-old can't do it. And the statesman you know, bowed to his teacher. So I think this story illustrates the challenges of keeping these teachings of all the Buddhas. And uh, our friend and teacher Kokyo Henkel suggests that bird's nest Roshi, um, his other response to the disciple, that it was pretty dangerous down on the ground, right? The first encounter that we hear about means that it's easy uh, to cause harm when going about in the world, right? Going about our daily lives. It's, it's, not, it's not hard to cause harm, right? Um, and we might want to just stay up in the tree, right? Or cave, stay in our cave or our hut somewhere in the wilderness and remain, if we're in our tree, you know, like above the fray, right? Keeping our own mind pure and ourselves out of trouble. <laughs> you know, and I would add, what could be the meaning of doing all good, right? We all have the experience of thinking that we're doing good or our intention is to do good only to have it backfire on us. That's my experience. But doing good in this instruction balances the avoiding, right, or renouncing of the first line, like withdrawing and just saying, I'm going to stay out of trouble. We can't ignore the instruction to do all good. So our Zen practice is Mahayana, meaning that we practice as bodhisattvas. We are practicing as enlightening beings who vow to practice in the world for the benefit of all beings. And we could say that Mahayana teaching unfolds these early sutras like the Dhammapada, right? the instructions we began with. And when I hear that unfolding, I really like that image. I think of not just like unfolding something that's you know, uh, tightly, tightly folded, but I think of something blossoming and blossoming and blossoming. Right? So in the Soto Zen that we practice, we call these admonitions or teachings that we are considering, again, the three pure precepts, and they are three of the 16 bodhisattva precepts that we all practice and which we receive when we take part in the ceremonies of Chukai or when we, for that matter, when we practice the, with the bodhisattva ceremony. And priests take the same vows. We just take these same vows over and over again. All of our ceremonies seem to be precept ceremonies, funerals, precept ceremonies. <clears throat> So after we acknowledge our karma, we recite 
these, the first three, these three precepts we're talking about. Um, and then we recite the, recite the 10 grave precepts, which begin with a disciple of Buddha does not kill and go on. There are numerous ways that these three pure precepts of Soto Zen are phrased. And I want to turn to these now. Different translations which express various understandings or different aspects. Excuse me. Sorry to be leaning forward so much, but I brought my glasses for one, <laughs> one distance of uh, text. And I'm having to kind of lean forward to see. Excuse me. Would you put that up on your platform? I think I'm okay. Thank you, I just may have to lean a little. Um, so the standard translation that we tend to use in our lineage reformulates these three pure precepts, these fundamental precepts in English like this. I vow to refrain all action that creates attachment. Is that what you use here? Is that your form here? Do you use those? No, not quite, but it's the same. Close, okay. I vow to make every effort to live in enlightenment. And I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. And these formulations are you know, pretty different from the original Dhammapada instructions, not just because of the change in language from Pali to English, but because they come through the unfolding of the teachings in the Bodhisattva way. And this wording that we use is actually, or that I just quoted, uh, it's, a, it's what we use in Austin is actually from Katagiri Roshi. Katagiri was a Japanese monk who came to assist Suzuki Roshi at the San Francisco Zen Center and then founded his own centers in the US. So in a nutshell, this path completely includes all others in our practice to live and be lived and to save all beings, as we sometimes say. These pure precepts of the Mahayana school are living in the truth of total interpenetrating interdependency. I like that word, interdependency. It's not really a word, but an English word, but it's very, uh, it, it brings the feeling of this understanding. Our interdependency with all things, with all phenomena, and to live from the realization that we are not separate entities at all, but rather we live and are lived by and for all beings. That is the Bodhisattva way. There's um, another formulation of the Bodhisattva precepts that we have from Tenshin Roshi, um, and I'll say that now. <clears throat> he says, embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies. And then the comment that goes with this from him is, abandon all inappropriate actions of body, speech, and mind. Embrace and sustain all good. And the comment is, wholeheartedly live life based on freedom from the illusion of the independent self, <clears throat> and then embrace and sustain all beings. And the comment, practice these two precepts with the right attitude. <laughs> the right attitude is pure or undivided mind. Right? But these wordings, if we really kind of dig into them, actually, I think, reflect the text as understood even in the Buddhist time, the instructions that the Buddha gave. <clears throat> Standards of conduct expressed in forms and ceremonies are the ethical precepts that monks vowed to uphold. 
So doing no harm, we could say, literally refers to keeping the precepts, but there is a reciprocity between the person practicing in this way and the practice itself. So undivided means there's not you and practice and something being practiced. It's all one thing. As Tenshin Roshi notes, in Japanese, the verb setsu is used at the beginning of each of these precepts. And this verb expresses both active and passive uh, aspects. So while the original Pali says do, do no harm, do all good, the Japanese setsu means something like guidance, but also being engaged at the same time, right? Working and being worked. So Tenshin Roshi <clears throat> suggests translating this as embracing and sustaining, but with the understanding that we are embraced and sustained by action that we consider good, that can be considered good. And our tradition's reformulations of the three great precepts are increasingly positive to my ear. Rather than do no harm or more pointedly do no evil, the languages of these wordings goes towards embracing, sustaining, wholeheartedness, inclusion, wholesomeness, and freedom. Right? So we call them grave, but that to me is very uplifting, that kind of language. And all of these positive wordings um, in the sense of realizing wholeness of our own being and oneness with all things and all beings. The original Pali word, which is translated as good, is kushala, which means skillful, virtuous, and wholesome. Uh, and things that we might express as harmful are in Pali, akushala, right? Unskillful, unwholesome, not tending to express the reality of non-separation of anything from any other thing. So doing all good, it could also be seen as being skillful, virtuous, and wholesome. And again, these are supportive of and express the understanding of non-separation. Um, and if we look at the original Pali, and I, I'm going to butcher the uh, pronunciation, but I will try. Um, it says, these three things in actual Pali, sabapasa akaranam. And sabapasa, of all harm or all evil, and akaranam, literally means non-doing. Right? So rather than do no evil, it's like non-doing of evil. Evil is not done. This non-doing is actually a noun in Pali and not a verb. And all evil is an attribute of non-doing. So in the earliest form of this teaching, it literally says non-doing of evil, which I think puts a different spin on this as well. And it has sort of the seed of this later unfolding that we get in Sabo Zen. Uh, the second one um, is kushalasa upasampada, all wholesome, skillful thing, the all wholesome, skillful thing, plus a gathering. The same kind of construction as the first line. Gathering is the noun and subject, gathering of skillful things, wholesome things. And then it says, sachita parayado panam one's own mind uniting or cleansing, uniting. <coughs> and then the last line, etam buddhana sasanam. This is all Buddhist teaching. 
So our current expression of the Bodhisattva way tends to avoid using words like evil, maybe out of a hesitation to give power to evil by naming it, or maybe resisting the temptation to have that word that we can use to label others <laughs> as evil or even ourselves in order to act as a check on our judging and commenting. But rather we are encouraged to embrace and sustain all beings. Tenshin Roshi says that by embracing and sustaining forms and ceremonies, we put down our self-centeredness and by directly confronting our resistance, we see our selfishness. By taking up forms and ceremonies, we engage in action that harmonizes us with others <clears throat> and expresses fundamental presence without judgment. But there is a further step that we can take with Dogen Zenji. And here again, I return to Shawako Makosa, which I mentioned earlier, the essay that talks about Bird's Nest Roshi. Dogen goes deep into an understanding of what we call evil from the standpoint of non-duality. We can understand do no evil or do not harm just like that. You know, refrain, don't do it, don't do it. But what is it? That's where Dogen comes in. What is non-doing of it, evil? This is what Dogen says. It is not that harm does not exist. It's just that it is not done. Harm is not empty. It is not done. Harm is not form. It is not done. This is very typical Dogen language. So it's interesting to remember again that in the Pali, the original sentence structure and vocabulary supports the understanding that Zen arrives uh, at an expression of direct non-duality, non-doing, right? Remember in the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness, emptiness form, and so on. Here Dogen, Dogen seems to say, harm or evil is neither form nor, I'm sorry, is neither form nor emptiness. It is beyond form and emptiness. And actually he continues, harm is not, not done. <laughs> it is just not done. <laughs> if you know Dogen, you're laughing, yeah. <laughs> Are you still with me here? <laughs> so again, Reverend Hinkle comments, in Zen, we have the practice of non-doing, the Zazen of non-doing, non-action, which doesn't literally mean that you don't do anything, but just that you don't do anything. <laughs> he extends this not doing of Zazen to not doing harm or evil. And again, this is a quote, if we don't do harm or make harm, contrive harm, it doesn't exist on its own, right? According to Dogen's understanding, there is not inherent evil in the world. If it isn't done, then evil doesn't arise. In other words, harm or evil have no essential self. There's no independent being. It's not some force out there. Right? Evil does not exist in any substantial way but is created by us in our minds and then in our speech and our action. So if the mind does not make harm, harm is not made, harm is not done. But of course we live in the <coughs> conventional world and we try to refrain from harm as we see it arise. And then we return to Zazen mind, which does not fabricate or contrive reality, right? So non-doing harm relies on embracing all good, 
the samadhi that we have when we sit, the unity with all beings and all things, and not rejecting ourselves either, and supporting precepts. The codependency of non-doing and embracing is really deep. You know, uh, there's also a teaching, Tigan Dan Layton brings us forward, uh, so does Tenshin Roshi, that Sazen itself is a ceremony. Sazen is a ritual, and not just because of the formalities, right, that we observe like bowing to our cushions and turning in a certain way. The instructions a Dogen gives in Fukan Zazengi that we sometimes chant are the order of the ritual of Zazen. They are the instructions for a ritual of expressing the truth of our total presence. The ritual of Zazen is not something though to learn as a skill or to progress in. It is something to wholeheartedly engage right from the start, right, right away. In Fukan Zazengi, Dogen says, if you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, that in itself is wholeheartedly engaging the way. Practice realization is, he says, naturally undefiled. Practice and realization are one, right? They are not different. They're not two things. They're not stages. Right away, one thing. And although Zazen is fundamental, in Dogen's detailed instructions for monastic life, Zazen is treated as one of a number of communal activities or ceremonies. Zazen embraces and is the foundation of all activity. As Tenshin Roshi says, performing the ceremony of Zazen heals any gap between our lives and the true Zazen practice of Buddha. And I like that emphasis on healing the gap, right? Closing the gap healing it, healing it. The meaning of the ceremony comes up together with its performance, what Tenshin Roshi calls a ceremony of inconceivable liberation, liberation from separation. Complete presence and stillness is thoroughly intimate with what is happening without interfering or manipulating it at all. So I'd like to wrap this up by speaking of the third of these instructions to embrace and sustain, or we often say to save all beings or to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings, right? In the original Pali, the wording was about purifying or uniting one's mind. And when we encounter those words, pure or purify, or other words like, you know, unstained or undefiled, in Zen, we should understand this as not as cleaning something dirty, we should hear again a reference to non-duality, to non-separation, healing that gap if, if you feel it. Thus purifying our mind is not separating self from other. And it also avoids the trap of thinking we are doing something ourselves, to ourselves, for ourselves, to improve ourselves, right? You know, improvement. <laughs> right? We are purifying our minds, the ultimate self-improvement project. It's a diluted view. So I'd like to uh, conclude, conclude by uh, one more quote from Tenshin Roshi. He says, the three pure precepts have been called pure because they have been purified of all duality. They are so simply stated, a three-year-old child can understand them. Yet even a person with 80 years of experience may not be able to practice them. He's now 80 years old. <laughs> he wasn't when he wrote this, but he is now. 
The practice of these precepts is like walking a 10,000-mile iron road, he says. Yet all bodhisattvas vow to walk the long and joyful path. And an iron road doesn't sound very joyful, but it's Liberation Street. 